the use of the word beauty in, in books that have been digitized by Google has decreased like pretty dramatically. And it, it's aligned with this idea of like, well, functionality is king. Functionality is what matters. And as if people think about functionality as be- and beauty as like two opposite things, like, no, they're not two opposite things. You know, functionality is important. And actually beauty enhances functionality because it does make things easier to use, more approachable, uh, more compelling to use. And the other piece of it that is not talked about in business as often is just the importance of how people feel. Things that are more beautiful increase trust. You, you see that like we've put painstaking detail into this and we care about the details of how something works. And that gives you assurance that we care about other details that you can't see too. Today, my guest is Katie Dill. Katie is head of design at Stripe, where she oversees product design, brand and marketing creative, web presence, user research, content strategy, and design ops. Katie was previously head of design at Lyft and head of experience design at Airbnb. She's built and led design teams at three different hyper-growth companies, seeing the team scale at least 10x, and two of which, Airbnb and Stripe, are some of the biggest and fastest growing companies in the world and also the best design products. In her conversation, Katie shares stories of trials and tribulations of leading large design teams, processes she's put in place for operationalizing quality, how she thinks about quality and beauty very practically, how design can directly lead to growth, and examples of this that led to big lift and conversion at Stripe, plus a math formula she uses to increase team performance, how she suggests organizing your design and product teams, what to look for in design hires, and so much more. I was really lucky to get to work with Katie while at Airbnb, and I am so excited to have her on this podcast. With that, I bring you Katie Dill after a short word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Sidebar. Are you looking to land your next big career move or start your own thing? One of the most effective ways to create a big leap in your career, and something that worked really well for me a few years ago, is to create a personal board of directors, a trusted peer group where you can discuss challenges you're having, get career advice, and just kind of gut check how you're thinking about your work, your career, and your life. This has been a big trajectory changer for me, but it's hard to build this trusted group. With Sidebar, senior leaders are matched with highly vetted, private, supportive peer groups to lean on for unbiased opinions, diverse perspectives, and raw feedback. Everyone has their own zone of genius, so together we're better prepared to navigate professional pitfalls, leading to more responsibility, faster promotions, and bigger impact. Guided by world-class programming and facilitation, Sidebar enables you to get focused, tactical feedback at every step of your journey. If you're a listener of this podcast, you're likely already driven and committed to growth. A Sidebar personal board of directors is the missing piece to catalyze that journey. Why spend a decade finding your people when you can meet them at Sidebar today? Jump the growing waitlist of thousands of leaders from top tech companies by visiting sidebar.com slash Lenny to learn more. That's sidebar.com slash Lenny. You fell in love with building products for a reason, but sometimes the day-to-day reality is a little different than you imagined. Instead of dreaming up big ideas, talking to customers, and crafting a strategy, you're drowning in spreadsheets and roadmap updates, and you're spending your days basically putting out fires. A better way is possible. Introducing Jira Product Discovery, the new prioritization and roadmapping tool built for product teams by Atlassian. With Jira Product Discovery, you can gather all your product ideas and insights in one place and prioritize confidently 
finally replacing those endless spreadsheets. Create and share custom product roadmaps with any stakeholder in seconds. And it's all built on Jira, where your engineering team is already working, so true collaboration is finally possible. Great products are built by great teams, not just engineers. Sales, support, leadership, even Greg from finance. Anyone that you want can contribute ideas, feedback, and insights in Jira product discovery for free. No catch. And it's only $10 a month for you. Say goodbye to your spreadsheets and the never-ending alignment efforts. The old way of doing product management is over. Rediscover what's possible with Jira product discovery. Try it for free at Atlassian.com slash Lenny. That's Atlassian.com slash Lenny. Katie, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. It's absolutely my pleasure. So as we were preparing for this podcast, you hinted at a story that you had from your time at Airbnb where the design team staged an intervention with you, which I had no idea about because I was there during this time and uh, did not know this was happening. I am so curious to hear the story. Can you can you share what happened? Uh -huh. St starting with the easy questions, <laughs> I see. All right. Right into um, it. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about it because frankly, it was the biggest learning experience of my leadership career, or at least that happened in one moment. And it happened in my early days at Airbnb. So I was hired to take on the design organization or the, the experience design organization. That's basically the product design team, uh, which was 10 people at the time. And so they had been reporting directly to one of the founders and they were going to start reporting to me. And during my interview process, I learned a lot about what was working and what wasn't working and some of the you know, trials and tribulations with the, the design organization and its collaboration with others. So it seemed like there was room for improvement in how engineering, product management, and design all worked together. And there was also really low engagement scores in the design team. And so I kind of came in ready to go and, you know, excited to try to help make some change based on all the things that I had learned uh, from various leaders and people across the company. And I, you know, came in swinging, ready to go. And then about a month into my time there, I got a meeting on my calendar, Thursday, 8.30 a.m., it was an hour and a half, with uh, half of the design team, so that was five people, and our HR partner. Oh, no. Not usually That's a never a good sign. Yeah. Uh, and I, I remember this so vividly. I remember walking into the office and, you know, all the rooms in Airbnb's office are very unique spaces that look like Airbnb's. But of course, this was the one room with like all white walls and just like a gray, you know, flat rectangle table. And I walked into the room and there were five of them seated around the table and they had a pack of papers in front of them and they went on taking turns, you know, quietly reading from the papers, all the things that they saw that I was doing wrong and all the things that they didn't like about me. And, you know, <laughs> it was a really hard moment. You know, there, I, I went through all the usual kind of like stages of grief when one hears feedback, which is just like, you know, immediate want to like respond to be like, no, like, you know, well, there was a good reason for that. And like, that's not how it actually was. And this is why I did that. But luckily I had, you know, thank goodness, I had the sense to just like listen and not respond in that way. I mean, clearly what they were telling me is that, you know, that was one of the things that was missing. And so I, I heard them out and, you know, took it all in and, 
you know, regardless of each individual thing, what was very clear was that, you know, the missing piece, the theme that was across all of that is that I hadn't earned their trust. So whether, you know, how right or how wrong what I was doing was, is like the key piece is that I wasn't bringing the team along with me. They had no idea that they could trust in, you know, what I was trying to build and what I was trying to shape and that I I cared about them and that I had, you know, their best interest and shared goals at heart. And that was absolutely my fault. And in retrospect, you know, as hard as that was, I'm like very grateful and very amazed that, you know, that they could kind of come together and, and, and share that with me. Uh, it's, it can be hard to you know, bring you know, feedback forward like that. And so it was an extremely valuable learning experience. And I took from that to then sh- immediately shift how I was operating. And really a key part in building trust was to, to listen, to hear out, you know, what, you know, the individuals on the team were, you know, setting out to do what they cared about that, you know, what motivated them. And so I started to make pretty fast change and still moving in the direction that, you know, was necessary for the org to make like the, you know, the really large impact in how we were operating, but bringing folks along with me. You can inflict change on people, but if you want to do it with them, you, you really, you know, trust is the, the key element there. And then, you know, a couple months later, we had the best engagement scores in the company. So like it oh, actually wow. like, you know, it did you know, objectively improve the situation and I've, you know, since then, taken that on into next steps and other companies that I've joined, and just think about like instead of coming and swinging, you know, come in listening, so that you can really you know set out to make change that actually has like true positive impact on, on the folks around you and that you bring along with you. Wow, uh, I was there during this. I did not know this was happening. Is this the time when all the designers were all always in one room together in there? Is that that period? Before I got there, I think there was a little of like, you know, design is just going to sit with design and not necessarily like work in in close proximity with engineers and product managers, et cetera. And one of the things that I believe as, you know, a necessary part of building a high functioning organization is that one, you know, building together is important. So like having engineers and product managers and designers be together, have shared goals and align on that and like be able to just like look over each other's shoulder and talk about things is important. So sitting together is important. However, that fair thing that you're talking about actually like was something that I was very devoted to, which is bringing design together at key moments multiple times throughout the week to also build the community in design. You know, like Joe bought at an Airbnb once said, and it's like, well, what t-shirt are you, do you wear? Like, what team are you on? And I was like, you wear two t-shirts, you have two t-shirts, you have the design t-shirt and you have the like marketplace t-shirt or whatever, you know, cross-disciplinary team that you work on. Uh, because both are really important communities to build for slightly different reasons. So yeah, Thayer was a good spot for that. Zooming out a little bit. I think the elephant in the room a lot of times with design is this idea that I'd say most PMs, most founders intellectually understand the value of design, understand the value of high quality, but day to day, it's often not actually prioritized versus new features, new product launches, and partly because the ROI is just really unclear. If we spend another month making this more awesome and making this even more amazing design-wise, experience-wise, why? what is that going to get us? Clearly at Airbnb, design was highly prioritized at Stripe. From an outsider's perspective, it clearly is. I'm just curious what you've learned about how to make the case for the ROI of design and just how Stripe and Airbnb and and Lyft have done that. It's a great question. And I think (laughs) this is like an age old question that I I don't know if we'll ever go away. And, you know, probably because, you know, the the quality bar, you know, keeps evolving and keeps rising. 
But I think like, you know, first to like kind of level set before we, you know, kind of dive into that, I, I would say that there are levels of quality, right? There is the like, does the thing work? Does it provide some sort of value proposition? It like executes on its job. Like that's like baseline quality. Next is that like, does it do it, you know, exceedingly well? Is it like error free? Actually, maybe that's not even exceedingly well, but just like error free and it actually works in a well-rounded way. And then beyond that, like level three, level four to level five, is a, does it exceed expectations and it do, does something that you weren't even in seeking for as a user? And I do think like the levels of quality should be based on user expectations. I don't believe that there are disciplines that just don't care about quality. I think it's more about that prioritization and kind of like what you talked about is just like, is it really worth getting something to that exceedingly well state or is it, you know, what about just like another feature, you know, and getting that, you know, being seduced by the chase of another feature versus actually, you know, taking your features to a level of being great. That is hard. And I get it when, you know, you look at your user base and they're all shouting from the rooftops for this additional feature. And, you know, of course you're going to want to prioritize that over something they've never asked for. And then the other thing would be you end up with like, you've got three things that you could possibly do to make perhaps, you know, the next stage in your product development. Two of them, you know, you can measure and they're going to line up to business goals. And one of them you can't like, of course, that's going to be enchanting to want to go after the things that you can actually measure. And you know that they're going to have that impact. But the companies that, you know, know that quality is non-negotiable. It is, you know, a long-term necessary aspect of what they build don't play that numbers game or that they, you know, what they do is they recognize that it's, it is absolutely functionality, but the quality of those features that is actually going to get to great usability, desirability in their product. And actually, I think it's kind of like an analogy for going to the gym or working out. Like, I don't know about you, but literally every time I, I think to do this, there's like a fight in my head of like, ah, do I really need to work out today? You know, is this one day, you know, going to give me six pack ads? Like, of course not. So like, why, why, why go? Why, why not just like skip it today? But of course, like then at some point, hopefully I realize that it's like, well, if I skip it today, what's to stop me from skipping it another day? And really in the belief of that, these things can, you know, intent it really does add up to a better outcome in the end. And so, you know, a longer, healthier life. And so hopefully I get myself together and, and go to the gym. Uh, and I do think some of the best companies in the world on the planet thinks that way. And I, I recognize that you, our customers don't always ask for it. I mean, you might see it in you know, support cases, for example, like clearly they don't know how to use this next step. And that is probably a quality issue. Um, and that, you know, they might be asking for, you know, more improved features, uh, but some of the levels of quality that, you know, the level two and three and four, you know, you might not get direct asked for, but I guess, I'll, you know, give you another analogy. Like if you don't have competition, that's fine, right? Like if you think about the first car, I'm sure that wheel was really hard to turn and I'm sure that seat was not comfortable and, you know, you could have any color you want as long as it's black, right? But like there was no competition. The competition was a horse. So, you know, no big deal. For, you know, cars today, it's like the stitching, the, you know, the choice of the leather, the sound of the door, like these distinguish, you know, a mm, okay car to a high-end special car with higher value. And this is very much by understanding, you know, that how the details matter and how execution of quality will take it to the next level. And, you know, lastly, I'll just say that, like, I know there's this saying of, like, it's growth versus quality, but, like, 
quality is growth. And if you think about how you can make your product easier to use and more understandable, you know, that will, of course, drive people to use it and use more of it and, and take, a, you know, have a better experience with it that they'll, you know, want to talk about with others. You know, in fact, at Stripe, our growth team, I would say, is like pretty much maniacally focused on building better experiences because we've seen it tied directly to our business metrics. We have things that we've improved on in you know, our onboarding flow, for example, to make it easier to understand the products, understand how they work for your different use cases, such that then we have seen activations increase because we've made these quality improvements that are just directly tied to growth. You know, one of the biggest examples that I've seen of business impact through quality is actually in the checkout experience. Hmm. So we've done research on the checkout experience in some of the top sites, e-commerce sites, and we found that 99% of the top e-commerce sites have errors in their checkout flow that actually hinder you know, more impactful, more you know, seamless, quicker checkout and therefore higher conversion with their customers. And these small things, it really, like, they're quality issues. They're just that if you really understand what a consumer is trying to get out of the experience, then you can make it better. And so we have been you know, maniacally focused on that over many years, trying to make the checkout experience so much better for businesses and their consumers. So by improving the quality of the checkout experience through details small and large, we have seen a 10.5% increase in businesses' revenue from that, you know, an older form of checkout to a newer form of checkout. And those little details matter to have such a material impact on one's revenue. You mentioned this before we start recording, but you guys power the checkout flow for some very big sites. Can you mention a few of these? Because they'll give people a sense of like, holy moly. Yeah, Stripe is used by millions of businesses globally, small and large, from you know, early stage startups to you know, SMBs, larger organizations and enterprises like Amazon and Hertz, Shopify, Spotify, X, which I believe you use. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know the the work that we do it ranges. We have checkout flows. So when you know, someone's paying online or in person, or we also provide a suite of financial automation tools so that you can run your subscriptions business and recognize your revenue and receive tax and essentially you know, manage the complexity of the financial space uh, through you know, powerful tools that hope to make your job easier so you don't have to sweat the details of how these things work. I just want to follow this thread a little bit. You talked about these opportunities to improve the checkout flow through a design lens. You could also think of it from like, like as a product manager, I'd be like, oh, wow, let's just find all the things that people get stuck on and fix them. How is it that you see that from the quality design perspective versus like, oh, there's just, let's just move this metric and here's all the things that are stopping people. What would you say is the designer's lens on that if there's anything there? I honestly, a, a pet peeve of mine is this way of talking about things as there's business goals and there's design goals. Because, you know, I think maybe the first conversation, you know, one should have is that, you know, like, well, what are we trying to build towards? And I would think that folks that want to create, you know, really impactful products, they want to create quality products and that they want to create things that actually serve their customers in a, you know, positive and beneficial way because they know that will build a stronger business in the long run. 
And so, yes, there may be, you know, slight prioritization details different through the process where, you know, a designer might be thinking, you know, more about the emotional experience and how somebody feels because that's, you know, oftentimes how they're wired and that is an important lens to bring on it. Whereas, you know, somebody else might just be like, well, you know, just make the button bigger and they'll, they'll click it more often. And, you know, that's what, what the outcome that we seek. So this is, again, why I was talking about how important it is to have multidisciplinary teams that work closely together, because sometimes we are, you know, the checks and balances in the conversation. But I do think if, if we can align on what are we trying to build? Are we trying to build something great? Then, you know, we can you know, recognize the fact that, like, it isn't just the you know, utility is an incredible important part of that. But so is usability and so is desirability because these things together make something truly great. And so you know, beauty is an important part of that uh, because it does make things more useful. It does make things more uh, accessible. And that with these things kind of coming together, you can you know, build towards something better. I think that, you know, beauty on its own or just you know, like craft on its own without utility I mean, that's like, I don't know, that's like Blu-ray or, or Path, right? Like that, that does not lead to a high quality product. So it is like the combination of these things. Uh, and so it's like stepping towards that. But if you really want your you know, product, those features to be utilized for all that they're worth and like to actually, you know, gain such, you know, esteem and uh, respect and reuse Taking it to that next level and thinking about, you know, how do I make this actually, you know, an enjoyable use and that it really feels like it's, you know, meant for me and it maps to my mental model, uh, that craft and that quality of, you know, the execution of those details is going to be paramount. You mentioned this word beauty, and I wanted to follow on this a little bit of just, this is a big question, but just like, what what is great design? What is beauty? Is there like a objective definition where if designers like this is great design is there just like yes that is true or is it just an opinion how do you think about what is great design what is beauty katie dill <laughs> i i love that we're talking about this because i feel like there's probably some people listening that are like squirming in their seats of like you know like beauty like you know, we're talking about business here uh, and i mean that's which is great and the um actually there's a fun fact uh it's stefan sagmeister and jessica walsh have a book called beauty and uh, i would highly recommend it very, very worth the read. But one of the first things they talk about in the book is that from the 1800s to the 2000s, the use of the word beauty in, in books that have been digitized by Google has decreased like pretty dramatically. And it, it's aligned with this idea of like, well, functionality is king. Functionality is what matters. And as if people think about functionality as be and beauty as like two opposite things. But what the whole book talks about is that like, no, they're not two opposite things. You know, functionality is important and actually beauty enhances functionality because it does make things easier to use, more approachable, uh, more compelling to use. And there is actually some objectivity to whether or not beauty enhances things. But if you ask, you know, a wide audience, you know, what color do they like more or what, you know, version of things do they like more? Like they, they tend to say the same thing because there is this like shared understanding and, you know, the other piece of it that, you know, yes, I, I can imagine is not talked about in business as often is just the importance of how people feel. And, you know, and a good example of how something looks and how something is, is structured and how that can you know, translate to that. Also from the, the book Beauty 
they mentioned that they studied the tweets that came from people that were traveling through Penn Station versus Grand Central. And if you've been to those places, I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, which is just like the, the people tweeting from Penn Station, it was just like more negative than the people that were tweeting from Grand Central Station that tended to be much more positive and optimistic. And so, you know, the things that you create have this impact. And if you're thinking about like, I want people to enjoy using my product. I want them to feel, you know, at home in our product. Of course, beauty is a part of it. You know, and, and this matters deeply to us. And I know, you know, as a financial infrastructure company in the B2B space, you know, some may assume that that doesn't matter as much, but it's actually a key priority for us because number one, things that are more beautiful increase trust. You, you see that like we've put painstaking detail into this and we care about the details of how something works. And that gives you assurance that we care about other details that you can't see too. And secondly, it is easier to use, as I've mentioned, it gives better user outcomes. You know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to equip businesses to make the right decisions to be more successful at what they do. And by, you know, bringing a interface or, you know, our invoices or whatever it might be to be more beautiful and more easy to use and more trustworthy, that will lead them to better outcomes. Thirdly, I strongly believe beauty begets beauty. And so when, you know, our business users or the consumers see, you know, the, the beauty and the, the care and the creativity that we put into the things we deliver, then, you know, that again reassures them of, you know, the, just like the care that we put into them. And actually a perfect example of this. Have you seen the show, The Bear? I have. Yes, okay. great okay. example. All right. And I don't yeah. want to, no spoilers, but like all I have to say is peeling mushrooms. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a good example. Such yeah, a good that, example. That someone just mentioned that same episode, uh, ah. recent podcast episode. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. it's that good. It's that good. Yeah. And I wish I could remember which episode that was, but it was seven. I forget. But yeah, anyway. that's exactly right. That's exactly oh, nice. Right. Okay. All right. Well, and then lastly, I, you know, quality is a matter of pride. Beauty is a matter of pride. Like if we put that in, you know, kind of, care into our work, more people will want to work with us because they want to see, you know, their time spent in the care for their craft recognized and utilized and, and see that that can, can be, you know, put together into something really impactful. And so, you know, we really put that on the pedestal, you know, because we know how much it matters to our users and how much it matters to the people that work with us. Um, beauty, beauty is an important part of it all. Amazing. Speaking of beauty, I think when I think of Stripe and beautiful. I think of your website and some of the specific landing pages you have, which are just incredibly nice. I'm just curious how you decide it's time to redesign your website and how much time and thought you put into a new website. Because that feels like a a common question founders have, like, should we redo our website? And it feels like you guys really think deeply about that. So I guess, is there anything there that you you can share? Yeah, there's definitely a couple of things we could talk about in terms of like operationalizing quality, because I mean, the gravitational pull is to mediocrity, right? Like, you know, it is, it is very easy to fall into a path of a baseline where what is required to go to that next level where something feels truly great is, is certainly a lot of effort and it's a concerted effort. And I will definitely say like we are a work in progress and you know, we have not nailed, nailed all the things. Uh, and it is an ongoing pursuit of, of excellence. And so the, the way that we build the website is that, you know, we, we certainly do, you know, put a lot of care into what we're putting out into the world. And we view it as a articulation of 
you know, how we care about our users and in, in all that we provide for them. So we take that very seriously. We try to kind of meld art and science. So it's a, the creativity of the work, but it's also just like the technical kind of power of the, the way that we show it. How we've actually operationalized the way we do that is that we have design and engineering and our product partners and product marketing work really, really closely on this. And actually, it's one of the the few teams where all of these things report, well, not all of them, but most of those functions report into one place. So engineering and design actually all report up into the design organization when they work on the website. And together, they like quite literally, as we were talking about earlier, you know, if we were physically together, they would be sitting side by side and, you know, they're batting ideas back and forth because, you know, the engineer on the team, you know, has a great idea for how we could go about executing on it. And the designer on the team has another idea, how to you know, push that a little further. And so that kind of rapid cycle of iteration is really, really powerful, especially when we're, you know, trying to move quickly, but at an extremely high standard. That's super interesting. Is there anything else that you found to be really helpful in just operationalizing great design, craft, beauty, any processes, systems, frameworks? Yeah, I would love to tell you about something that we've actually rolled out pretty recently that I'm extremely excited about the the positive impact on. Awesome. But before I get into that, uh, one of the things that you know kind of has been driving a little bit of this process and the way that I've been you know thinking about how you know we can build better things uh, at Stripe is actually I've been just talking to people, talking to different, you know, design leaders, product leaders, engineer leaders at different organizations and trying to understand, you know, how they go about it. And there are a couple of themes that are clearly coming through. You know, number one is that quality is definitely a group effort. You know, you're sunk if you think that like, you can just like hire some incredibly talented person and then like, and they'll do it, that'll be fine. You know, the rest of us will do what we're doing and they'll do it. Um, or that it's just like one organization that's going to look out for quality or, you know, QA is going to solve it all for you. Uh, it really does need to be, you know, an organizational and a group effort. And if you think about like, you know, the way that you run, you know, the, the internal functions is, is going to show up in the outside and like how clear you all are and how you're talking about it and the standards that you set inside and you're constantly reminding people of in the way that you communicate inside will then eventually show up outside. So take, you know, of course, keeping your talent bar high and then thinking about how those things, you know, really need to be cared for, you know, that shared care across the organization is, is number one. Number two is that, you know, there needs to be some amount of vision and alignment. So, you know, if you hire all the best people in the world and you just like set them out to like go and do their thing, what are the chances that they're all going to end up with something that actually aligns pretty well, right? Like even if they all have incredible taste and they're very good at what they do, you know, there is subjectivity to every decision in some part. And so that they might end up with some things that are really great, but don't fit together as a really nice whole, like the perfect example would be building a house, right? So you have like the person that works on the roof and the person that works on the deck and a person that does the siding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a house is arguably far less complex than most of the technical products that we all know. And yet there like is painstaking effort put into, you know, having you know, the plans and having, you know, a drawing of what the final thing is going to look like. There's a GC, there's an architect. And these people are helping to make sure that all those pieces fit together. And we should have that same care when we're trying to build products together. 
And so I think a big pair on that is then the next piece, which is editing. And, you know, you might call that your, your GC or your architect or somebody that, you know, kind of sees how all these things fit together and then has, you know, an ability to kind of help narrow and, and reduce and remove the things that don't fit. And so like at Airbnb, you know, Brian Chesky is like the editor of all the things that, you know, come together at the economist, you know, there's a chief editor, but you know, other organizations, they might decentralize that approach, which is, you know, certainly possible and, but, you know, challenging because you do need somebody to help kind of like see these things come together. And that pairs with the next piece, which is about courage, like the ability to actually like say, you know, no, this isn't good enough. Like to have the resolve to just be like, mm, almost, but no which is like one of the hardest decisions I think leaders can make. And certainly I've had to ever make in my career too. It's just like, you know, a team puts like all this care and effort into something. And then you're going to say like, actually, it's just like, unfortunately, like we're just not there yet. Let's try again. And that is, I think, you know, incredibly important part of getting there uh, and building that, you know, the kind of the fitness of what you do. And then lastly, the thing that I've learned that will lead me to the example that you were asking about is that, in order to build quality, you really do need to understand it also from the user perspective, which kind of gets me into, you know, my fixation with journeys, mm. because that is how a user sees it. The user very, very, very rarely just like deals with any aspect of what you build in isolation. There has to be a moment where they learn about it. There has to be a moment where they get to know it. And then there's a moment where they actually decide to use it. And then oh, something just changed. And now they need to use the uh, that product in some other way. And so you have to understand it from that point of view to really understand whether or not the quality is there. And I think that's a critical piece of building teams that have empathy for their users. So we have been operationalizing that, you know, all, all the things that I just mentioned, but like one of the, the key pieces is to, you know, kind of bring that approach to understanding the quality of the product. And so our goal was to set out to try to solve the fact that, you know, products can be shipped and they could be at the, their highest gain when you ship them. Like you, they go through all the processes internally to be, you know, a high quality thing. And then it gets out into the world. And then over time, the quality regresses. And some of the reasons for that is that, you know, other things are being shipped. And it's kind of like, again, back to an analogy of a house. Like imagine you have one room where you redo the molding. Uh, and, you know, you paint the little aspects and you put like new plates on the lights. Now, all of a sudden, that room is great, but it makes everything else look worse. <laughs> and the whole composite is worse. And so that is, you know, something that can happen to products is actually they, you know, kind of get worse over time. And then you organize a company oftentimes in, you know, parts to be able to focus on their key business areas. That's a very good thing because they get focused and they know what they're, you know, building towards and they get expertise and they're, you know, laser focused on that. And so that ideally they move faster. But what also happens is that they get so focused on that, they forget about that piece of the journey and how it all fits together and not recognizing that, you know, part of their product experience is intimately tied to another. So what we did was we set out to, number one, increase the, you know, kind of awareness and accountability of leaders to own their journeys. And so what we have established are, you know, we, we started with 15 of our most important user journeys. 15 is, you know, somewhat of an arbitrary number. It's a number that we can kind of keep track of, but also, you know, has pretty good breadth, but it's certainly not comprehensive of all the most important things. 
but 15 of our, you know, critical user journeys, the things that we know matter so deeply to our users and we must get right at the highest level of quality possible. And so those 15 things then each have engineering product and design leaders that are responsible for the quality of those products. And they review these journeys, what we call walk the store, where they review them as if they're you know, walking the floor of their store on a regular cadence. And they friction log what they experience, which I know David Singleton talked about on your mm -hmm. podcast. Mm -hmm. And they will write, you know, what they have seen, what's working, what's not working. And they're, they're viewing this from, you know, they're trying to put themselves in the shoes of their user. This is, of course, doesn't replace user research, but it, you know, kind of substitutes it and it adds to that. And so they go through the experience and, and noting, you know, what's working and what's not working. And very critically, it's a journey. So a lot of times, you know, it starts from internet search. It starts on, you know, Google trying to understand something, goes to the website, you know, they end up on docs, they end up in the dashboard. And they're seeing it as a user might. And with that, they're be, they're able to find, you know, the, the entailments of, you know, the experience that may or may not be working. And they jot that down. They file bugs. They reach out to the teams that may own the different parts of this experience. And then they score it. And then on a, you know, again, a regular cadence, we come together in almost like a calibration where we meet and we talk about the score of their work. And it, it kind of relates to performance reviews, right? Like, you know, performance reviews, managers are assessing an individual's performance, which is hard, right? Like it's like there's some subjectivity to it, just like understanding quality can be. But what we do as managers is we calibrate, we come together and we talk about like, okay, how well is this, you know, is our interpretation of our ladders document and, you know, how well does that performance align and are we doing it you know, consistently across the rest of the organization? And so we do something very similar. We, we calibrate, you know, these scores because what we're really trying to do is not just, you know, the 15 essential journeys and the, the owners of those. We want to actually like up level and, and, and bring more, you know, shared understanding of our quality bar across the company. And so these moments of calibration kind of start that. And then having leaders do this, you know, kind of like creates this like, you know, number one, it like cascades this idea of the importance of owning your journey and then also has upstream impact because when people see the state of products in the wild as a user would, they learn a lot about, you know, what are you know, some of the bigger opportunities that we can make to make the product better? What are some of the things that maybe we want to change in our process to make sure that we have, you know, even better things coming into the wild? And, you know, one of the best parts of this is since then we've learned that, you know, folks, you know, have seen that like, oh my goodness, our SEO for this particular product, you know, or, you know, the way we're articulating it doesn't align to actually how we want people to understand it later on in the journey. So if we improve this over here, we're going to improve outcomes later on. And so they're seeing that and, you know, they're, they're now, you know, like able to make that happen even, you know, faster to make some of the changes there. And then my, you know, real favorite part is that we're hearing from folks that maybe at first didn't see this as, as necessary. Uh, that, you know, maybe in different functions that are, you know, just like, oh, you know, I, I was so very focused on executing, you know, the technical ability of what I do on this thing, but I, you know, hadn't seen it from this lens before. And now they're like, actually like converts of like, yes, this is a really important part of it. And that goes back to the point of like, it's a group effort. Like you don't want just one function looking out for the quality of the product. So having engineers and product managers and people of different disciplines kind of walking the store, seeing the experience, feeling it firsthand, 
I think will lead to better care in you know all of the details that will align to better craft in the end. Oh man, what an awesome process. I have a million questions I want to ask to better understand how you operationalize this. I'll try to ask just a few. But one thing that stood out about this process is I think people kind of don't trust their own judgment when they're looking at their own product. They kind of, especially product managers, almost have to like feel like they have to rely on user research or data to like know a thing versus like, I just see this and it feels bad to me. And I think I've learned over time more and more that you should really trust that because you're you're spending your energy trying to use this thing. You're not that different from a potential user. So just, I love that this actually relies on your personal judgment trying to use a thing, which I think people undervalue. Yeah. A couple of just very tactical questions. Uh, how often roughly does this happen? Is it like once a quarter? Yeah. And it, yeah, to your first point, 100%. Like, they're all just forms of input. Like I'm definitely not saying like, do this instead of user research, do this instead of data. It's like, you know, these things in additional sense. And I, I do think what's so powerful about doing it firsthand is that although I am like the biggest supporter of user research, even hearing some but he talk about an experience while that is like really, really powerful. Feeling the pain firsthand is just like this next level of visceral understanding of like, oh, this could be better. And your users, you know, they might not always say what's missing or what's wrong, or maybe they don't, you know, they don't know that certain aspects of it could be better. So yeah, having your, you know, point of view on that in addition to the user research and what you've heard from them directly is really, really important. But you asked about how often. Uh, we have, you know, as I've mentioned, we are, you know, constantly looking at our processes and trying to figure out how we can, you know, make them better and better. You know, as an organization, you know, as we've grown, you know, things, you know, need to adjust. We today are doing it quarterly. And the quarterly aspect of like walking the stores by no means meant to be like, that's the only time people do it. But that is the time where, you know, we're looking for like update your scorecard and, you know, share the information in a dashboard where, you know, everybody can see. And that is feeling right now to be the right cadence because that's enough time that, you know, there can be, you know, material differences made. And so you can see and kind of like the scores evolve over time, but also frequently enough that, you know, you're not missing that perhaps, you know, there's been a setback since. But of course, my real hope is that these happen, you know, they're happening weekly, just perhaps in different parts of the organization. I want to ask a couple more questions so that folks can try this at home. I was just thinking like this podcast is the opposite of don't try this at home. It's like, here, do you try this at home? Try it at home. Yeah. So I want to try to give people a few more answers to questions when they're probably going to try to do this themselves. So um, who's in these meetings? Like, do you join these walkthroughs? Does like David join? What do you suggest there? Yeah. Yeah. So what, for what we're doing for each team is they do them themselves together. So uh, it, you know, at bare minimum, it should be the engineer, product manager, and designer doing it together. And the reason why we like to see it happen together is again, as we've talked about before, is that like people bring a different perspective to something. And so let's say, you know, somebody in the room might be like, oh my goodness, you know, that like, that the load time didn't feel really good there. And like, oh, whoa, that like the, the way we're stating this is not consistent per page. 
Um, and ah, that's not on our design system. Uh, so, it, you know, it is really powerful to have folks like come together and do it. And in fact, David Singleton, who you mentioned, he and I do these things very regularly too. Like this is like kind of outside the essential journeys program, but like he and I walk the store and we'll just pick random flows and go through it together. And, you know, I can't code, but he can. And so he'll like, he'll do the code part and I'll be, you know, sitting there being, what, you know, do they really do that? Like, you know, can, can we, you know, how can we make that better for them? Mm. Uh, and so it's, I, I really love the multidisciplinary approach. But then when we do the calibration after the team has done mm. these walkthroughs and they've kind of gotten their own perspective and they, you know, fill out the scorecard based on our rubric for quality, uh, we will come together in what we call PQR product quality review and they will take us through what they have you know experienced mm. and then they'll talk about like and so this is why we've scored this a yellow or a yellow green and uh and then we might have a you know conversation about that it's like well actually like that felt a little worse than you know you've described it and actually like i think that you know we probably need to put more urgency on solving that or in some cases it's like actually like that was pretty great you know if you think about you know, what we're, we're trying to, you know, help somebody achieve at this moment, like that actually is, is really, you know, hitting the mark. And so we will debate that there. And in those meetings, you'll have, yes, myself, David Singleton, um, uh, Will Gabrick, uh, who, you know, leads product and business, and then various leaders from the organization that might be relevant to that area. We are trying to give people kind of like insight to what's happening across. So again, it's a multidisciplinary room. I'm trying to keep it, you know, not too, too large because obviously it can be you know, hard to have discussion, uh, but it is you know, very valuable to make sure again that we have you know the perspective of product marketing and the perspective of engineering and the perspective of product in the room as we discuss what our quality bar is. Awesome. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. In terms of scoring, are you scoring individual steps of these journeys, or is it yellow for like segments? What are you scoring? The way the rubric works is so that, and, and we, we have a template for the friction log. So people fill out a friction log and it'll be like screenshots and then what they experienced. And then there is a, you know, kind of a tool to tag for each kind of moment. It's like, oh, that was a nice touch or, oh, that is, you know, not great. We should consider a fix or different levels of kind of severity of like, oh my gosh, P0 bug, we need to fix this right now. So they'll, they'll tag for different moments in the journey. And then there is a summary score at the end, which is based on a rubric that we have that talks about, you know, the importance of quality from the point of view of usability, utility, desirability, um, and, you know, actually going to that next level of surprisingly great. And then we'll ask them to score on a whole what they felt of these things. And then that adds up to a summary score, which we have also talked about the different ways of scoring. You know, is it a number-based system? Is it a letter-based system? Like A minus B. Uh, yeah, it, we have so far we have landed on a color system because mm -hmm. honestly, I think people can get a little tied around the axle on how you're measuring it. And like to your point, is like especially in subjective things, and it's just like, oh, you know, it's like, well, is it really a six or is it a seven? And mm -hmm. you know, we didn't <laughs> want people to get a little too, you know, too worried about, you know, how does like it's not meant to be an objective quality quantitative score. It is qualitative. It is judgment. We hire people for judgment, you know, so we want, you know, th them to bring that to the conversation. And so that's, you know, how we chose the score because we felt that would actually lead to, you know, quicker, but like straightforward uh, opinions and decisions. At a lot of companies, you have these reviews and the founders like share all this, like, oh, this is broken. This is busted. And as a product team, you're like, God damn it, we have these goals we got to hit. We have this roadmap and now we're going to get a hundred things that the founders like, mm -hmm. you got to fix this. 
<laughs> I'm curious just how you tell teams to take this stuff and prioritize it amongst all the other things they're going to do. Is it just up to them? Is there like need to fix this? Anything you can share there, but just like how to actually operationalize taking this feedback and doing something with it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some organizations talk about, you know, when they're doing planning, you know, you do your OKRs quarterly or half year or year or whatever, you know, recommendations of like, you know, 10% of your time should be spent on, you know, fixing things and 20% on growing things and the rest on, you know, keeping the lights on, whatever it might be. So yes, I've seen different companies, you know, build a recommendation based on certain percentages of how they think teams should be spending their time. And we at, at Stripe think that, you know, first and foremost is that, you know, we have to make sure that folks are number one, you know, hired with the fact that they have great judgment and care for what they build and they take pride in it. Like, you know, that's like number one. And then, you know, you can give a lot of trust to people based on that kind of commitment to building great things that they will use that in their decision-making. And then of course it, it needs to be very clearly you know, advocated for at the highest levels of the company. And with that, I think that kind of like fuels people's thinking as they're building their plans, but there is iteration in the plans and we do have multi, multidisciplinary people, you know, making the plans together. So it's like, oh, okay, are we advancing these features? Are we, are we going to be building growth? And, you know, is that, you know, improving the quality as well? Uh, and so I think that's how we kind of together get to it, but we don't have, like, there's no formula that we ask people. To so basically what I'm hearing is it's a cultural kind of just everyone People are hired with this expectation and we are going to focus on quality and we'll prioritize things, even though they may not move metrics, because we know that this will generally improve and grow the business. Part of it, though, is showing how it moves metrics, mm. because I, I think that is a dangerous belief that is absolutely out there, as we, we talked about earlier, but that actual quality improvements do increase growth. They do improve the bottom line, right? That like, you know, for example, we, you know, saw that folks were reaching out to support because they didn't know the state of uh, how, you know, one of their invoices was performing. And what we, when we dig in, we realized it's like, well, we had a button that like looked nice, but it wasn't super clear. And mm. so they didn't know how to access the thing that they were trying to do. And so by improving that, you know, we decrease the need for them to have to reach out, which is clearly not their, you know, want, uh, to have to like, call somebody to, you know, find the answer to their problem. And so with that, we made an improvement and we, of course, improve the bottom line because of that. So I actually think that maybe you know, one of the steps that somebody should consider in their organization is just like, you have those examples, like every company does, where, you know, quality leads to better business outcomes. And to talk about those and make them known, because I, I think it's actually a false belief that, you know, it's like one or the other. It's like, are we going to work on quality and it doesn't move the metrics and, and, and where we do, you know, some of them are, you know, longer term. And so you have to look out for a, a, a while to see that change and, you know, the beliefs of your customers or, you know, how often they're, they're sharing your product or how often they're succeeding in what they're trying to do. But some of them are short term uh, impacts. And that is an important thing for people to be aware of because it will give them ideas of like, Oh, we could do this in our team too. We can have a higher quality product and actually moves the business metrics. Is there anything you do in how you evaluate performance of teams that helps prioritize this sort of thing? 
So generally, it's just like, cool, this team moved this metric by a ton. They're doing great. I guess, is there anything that you bake into performance evaluations at Stripe, especially for product teams that help them understand and prioritize some of these things that may not obviously move metrics other than just broadly, we believe great experiences are going to improve growth? Yeah. Well, I think one part is being clear on what impact means. Mm. Because I do think that in some companies, you know, impact is like, okay, how, you know, what business metric did I move and how much? And there are, you know, certainly really important impact projects that folks can have that maybe they're multi-quarter, you know, multi-year. And so, you know, maybe you didn't move, you know, this incredibly important business metric in one quarter, but actually like the work that you are doing is instrumental to the success of the business. Uh, so there's that. And then, like you said, you know, there are perhaps you know, quality efforts that are harder to measure or they're longer term, uh, but they are still impactful. So I think number one is that, you know, when you're thinking about how to come up with the rubric for how you're going to judge performance, it's just like really honing in on what, what does impact mean? And, and then a, a lot kind of comes from that and being able to you know, celebrate and recognize great work happening, even when, you know, it's not necessarily materially moving that number. Um, the other part of it is you know, we have a levels and ladder system. So it's a, a document that's not meant to like lay out, like, here's the checklist of all the things you need to do, but it's, you know, kind of a guide for you know, this is what is expected in your role and, and at this level. And in these documents, we talk about the importance of things like quality uh, in that the, you know, what we pursue is, is building these, you know, things that are, are great. And another part of that is also the operating principles, which is kind of like the, the thing that we align on underneath all of these kinds of levels and ladders systems that we have. And our operating principles include meticulous craft. Um, it is one of the things that is really important to us as an organization is just like having that meticulous care for all that you do. Like whether it's like you're, you know, designing the space that we work within or that you're creating the API or that you're building the interface or that you're, you know, talking to people on support calls, like the meticulous craft is something that, you know, is actually expected of everybody. Mm. Today's episode is brought to you by One Schema, the embeddable CSV importer for SaaS. Customers always seem to want to give you their data in the messiest possible CSV file. And building a spreadsheet importer becomes a never-ending sink for your engineering and support resources. You keep adding features to your spreadsheet importer, but customers keep running into issues. Six months later, you're fixing yet another date conversion edge case bug. Most tools aren't built for handling messy data, but one schema is. Companies like Scale.ai and Pave are using one schema to make it fast and easy to launch delightful spreadsheet import experiences. From embeddable CSV import to importing CSVs from an SFTP folder on a recurring basis. Spreadsheet import is such an awful experience in so many products. Customers get frustrated by useless messages like error on line 53 and never end up getting started with your product. One schema intelligently corrects messy data so that your customers don't have to spend hours in Excel just to get started with your product. For listeners of this podcast, One Schema is offering a $1,000 discount. Learn more at oneschema.co slash Letty. I'm going to shift to a different topic, and this is just the last area I want to spend some time on which is team building, leadership, that sort of thing. So you've led design at three hyper-growth companies, two of them, Airbnb and Stripe, are like two of the biggest companies in the world and also just known for great design. And I'm just going to ask a broad question. What have you learned about building, leading, managing, scaling 
large teams. Are there lessons that stick with you? Anything come to mind when I ask that broad question? One of the things that has stuck with me and, you know, through all the the trials and tribulations of leading and as I've already laid out for you in the very beginning of this call, haven't always got it right. Uh, but one of the things that has like been a clarifying force as I think about growing and leading teams, uh, is actually something I learned at Airbnb when we were there together. It's a formula, uh, sort of, uh, so performance equals potential minus interference. Mm. And I really like this. It's pretty simple, but like, it's a good reminder that, you know, as a leader, one of the things that you are, you know, of course, driving towards is trying to get better performance, uh, you know, better performance so that, you know, your team feels, you know, more purpose and motivation and is excited about their work and that you're building greater things for, you know, your customers and you're having more business effect, of course, performance. But the key pieces of that, of course, is potential. So thinking about how you increase potential, which would be, of course, hiring really well, developing the talent and helping them grow and and increase their own potential to do better and greater things. And then paired to that, though, of course, is decreasing the interferences, which could be that like kind of lead weight on top of great talent, because you can hire the best people in the world. But like a muscle atrophying underneath a cast, if you know, there are interferences that are holding them back from doing great work. You know, they're going to burn out. They're not going to enjoy the work. They're not going to be as successful and you will not get as strong of performance from it. And so I really do think of this constantly as to like, how can I increase potential? How can I decrease interferences? And over time, especially as your company grows, you know, you're going to have to keep doing that. Like, you know, the, the design work is never done in designing a team because the more people you bring in, you know, the more it puts your processes in a, in a faulty state. Um, we, you know, intentionally, or I, I have intentionally, you know, run teams where, you know, you get to a point where like, it's kind of like running hot, right? It's just like, okay, like we've outgrown our processes and that's okay because then you can learn as to like, okay, this is how people are actually trying to work and this is how we actually can, you know, can improve it. So, you know, making those changes as needed, you know, helps to make them, you know, more sought after and, you know, more informed in terms of as you improve the processes. One of the things that I've been working on since I worked back at Airbnb was this idea of improving awareness of the things that are happening. What happens at a lot of companies, especially as they grow, is people lose touch with what's happening in different parts of the organization. And, you know, everybody's got like a doc that, you know, their PRD where they've written down what they've done. And it's got like tons of, you know, words that nobody really understands and, you know, keywords for the different projects. And that isn't, you know, the best way to lead to clarity. And I'm a strong believer that a picture tells a thousand words and a prototype tells, you know, saves a thousand meetings. What we do, and I've been doing it for the last, I I don't know, know, decade or more, is having people within the design team share as a screenshot or a prototype of what they are working on in a shared deck. And so they add this to a slide in Google slide decks every couple of weeks and we get to see what's happening across the design team. And this is really important for all the designers because they could see, you know, whether or not they're a team of 10 or 170 or whatever it might be, what is happening. And they can say like, oh my gosh, like you're working on that surface. Like, so am I. And let's talk about it. Or, oh, that's an interesting pattern. Like, you know, maybe we could use this in more places. And we send it to 
the product managers and the engineer leaders and the leaders in the company, because it is also a really great way for them to understand what's happening and what are we building together? Because going earlier, as I talked about, the importance of thinking about things as a journey. So like what's happening in the marketing side, what's happening in the, you know, this aspect of the product and seeing how all these pieces really fit together. That has been, you know, absolutely like one of the things I will take where, you know, wherever I go, whatever I do, because it has just been like very, very useful tool. I remember that at Airbnb and I, there's nothing more fun than just looking through a bunch of awesome designs and products that are in motion and in a deck form is so handy. You just flip through what's going on around the company and like, oh, wow, look at this thing. That's amazing. And it's interesting that it ends up in a deck, like it feels like Figma would be really good for that too, but, but somehow decks are still really, really handy for simple things like that. One of the key pieces is just like keeping it really low maintenance. Uh, yes, you know, the, the design team would definitely prefer that it would be in Figma, mm -hmm. but I, you know, critically, I, I want all functions to be able to look at it. Uh, and, you know, if not everybody is on Figma, and it, you know, if they were, that would be great too. But if they are not, you know, it's just like flipping through really easy, touch of a button, you know, you can just like send it off. Um, it's behaviors that people are really used to commenting, but yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> and the way you do that is it's just like a scheduled call for all designers, add your stuff to this deck and then you email it out every two weeks, I think you said. Yeah, yeah. We And we experiment with like how often we ask folks mm -hmm. to share and also like, you know, the granularity of what they're doing. Like it is not meant to be a status check. We're not asking everyone like, show us what you're doing. It's more of like, what are the projects that are happening? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we might ask, like, well, show us like the medium and large projects, you know, if there's not just too much going on and all of a sudden it's like a 200 page deck and no one's going to flip through it. So we have experimented and evolved that depending on the team size. Uh, and I think right now we're at monthly uh, sharing of it. And that seems to be working pretty well. Uh, it used to be biweekly, which I loved because I really love looking through, but it, it ends up, you know, if it's, you know, feels like it's an arduous task. Um, then, you know, it's not succeeding. Yeah. And especially knowing designers, they'd want to make sure it's the best version of what they've done. And then it takes all this extra time to like, okay, we got to make this beautiful mock. Yeah. You know, and that's actually on. another part of it that, you know, is another benefit of, you know, opening up the curtain a little bit of like, we, you know, we do, you know, certainly we have to take things seriously in terms of like, you know, confidential work, it's work in progress, you know, it's not ready to go live, you know, we're not ready to, you know, critique all the details about this, like, you know, we, we do need to make it very clear to folks that this is like work in progress. But also, you know, that it it is really beneficial to bring the work out, because what isn't great is that you get to the end of the project, and people have worked tirelessly on it for some long stretch of time, and then find out that like, oh my gosh, this is the same project that we're doing over here. <laughs> and, you know, this can be completely redundant or like these two things are on a path to collide. So we want to know that sooner because it absolutely in the end of the day will make the work better, save time. Uh, and so, you know, opening up that curtain and showing the work in progress, you know, it can feel hard at first, but I think people have started to see the benefits in doing that. And then, you know, usually that will lead to better outcomes in the long run in the culture too. Going back to this formula you shared, which I love, performance equals potential minus interference. Is there an example that comes to mind of helping with interference where you found that, oh, wow, this is really slowing things down and you changed something? It actually goes back to org design that we talked about earlier um, and where people sit. So when I joined Lyft, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, I was like, oh, I had learned from the experience that I had at Airbnb and I came in and you know, needing to transform the organization and was hopefully much better at it because I had learned so much. Uh, what actually was going on there is that 
the way that the team was organized before I got there was that actually you know, physically the design team sat separately. They sat in a room that was just like beautifully designed, uh, separated from engineering and product and all the other functions by a locked door. Oh, and man. that was really interesting to see because of course there were a lot of benefits to it, which is that like design, you know, had this like very safe space for creative discovery and exploration and communication there was you know, work all over the walls. It was like wall-to-wall whiteboards. And it was just like absolutely a place where you know, creativity could thrive. It sounds exactly like the Airbnb situation, by the way. The current Airbnb situation? The original, the Thayer, oh, yeah. Thayer times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, absolutely, there are a lot of like tie-ins to, you know, what I had seen. And the you know, interesting part about like how, you know, actually teams were working is that you would see that there was like a lot of wasted work and there was a lot of like misalignment in what we were trying to do because there was, you know, product managers and engineers that were sitting alongside each other, making decisions and talking about the work and deciding things. And then designers were sitting over here in this other room and they were working on something. And then they're like, you know, they meet up and it's like, well, that's not aligned. Like, no, that doesn't fit the goal. And like, what, you know, you went that way, we, we were supposed to go over this way. And so, you know, interference in the sense that it was like, it was wasted work. It wasn't actually aligned to the goals. It was slower. And, you know, there were definitely benefits. Like there was real reasons for doing this. And I know there are companies, um, including Apple that have, you know, kind of like separation of these things. But I think it, if you're going into that kind of way of working, you know, there's probably a lot of other decisions you need to make too, in terms of the way the teams work. And so what I was seeing there was just, you know, it's kind of like the composite of all these you know, aspects coming together that was not leading to, you know, more efficient and, and less interference. And so what we did was to evolve the way we were working and bring better alignment to the different functions. And again, you know, had done it with, you know, an approach about listening and, you know, came into that with a, you know, kind of better understanding of getting to know the team and getting to know engineering and product and, and see what our goals were together so that when we were making changes, we were making the changes together. And we you know, actually were aligned so that like on the day that we opened the doors and, you know, brought, you know, design and engine product together and, and had, you know, spaces for folks to like work together. And like, they actually sat with each other. We still kept the creative space for, you know, this is where we'll do crits. This is where we'll do working sessions. This is where the folks that don't work in an embedded fashion will sit. But we had like, you know, the best of both worlds in that way. And so with that alignment of the way that the, fun the teams were working together, there was much like faster kind of iteration cycles better clarity on how the work was working. And we still kept and protected, you know, that room for creative space, like literally the room and literally the room in terms of like figuratively speaking mm -hmm. uh, for allowing for, you know, creative exploration, but more aligned. And just to understand, essentially you reorged the teams and not just physically move people, but you kind of changed the way the product and design and eng team was even organized. Yes, yes. Like literally and figuratively, we broke down the wall and, <laughs> you know, brought you know, the teams physically together so that they would work together. And then, you know, we had an org chart where it's like, okay, these designers are working on driver. These designers are working on rider. These designers are working on, you know, the, the safety team. And then they would sit with their respective engineers and product managers. Uh, and then, you know, we would, as I talked about earlier, like we would come together at key moments to make sure that we as a design function we're still, you know, aligning on, you know, shared goals about, you know, the overall experience, but also making sure that we could work well with our partners. So interesting that that was a recurring pattern at the places you went. I imagine Stripe was not like that. There was not all designers sitting in that locked room. 
not in a locked room. And when I joined Stripe, it was a Zoom universe. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's a little bit different. Um, Zoom. But, you know, we do, even today, we have, you know, a studio space uh, where, you know, we have all the, the great, you know, tools of craft. And when you do go into the offices, we do have places where, you know, designers sit together, especially in the functions that aren't embedded. So we do have, for example, we have brand and marketing creative. Mm-hmm. We have the, the website team um, and, we have, you know, folks that work kind of across all of the things that we do. And so, you know, for sure, there there usually is some sort of creative space, which I actually think like having a physical space for creative discovery and exploration and, you know, having that up on the wall, like, you know, I, I love that so much. And, you know, I, I go into the office about half time now. And, you know, I think over time, we'll probably build that out more and more because it is really powerful in addition to having teams like sit by the, the disciplines that they work with every day. It reminds me of a quote I have on my wall that I think I found in the Rick Rubin book, but it's by someone else. So I don't know exactly where I found it, but it's uh, the object isn't to make art. It's to be in that wonderful state, which makes art inevitable. Ooh, that's good. I like that very by, much. By uh, Robert Henry. Okay. By Robert that's what Henry. I try to do in this little podcast studio that we got here. That's um, awesome. Is there anything else that you think would be useful to share either from scaling design teams or broadly? I think one of the other tendencies I see of companies at different stages of their growth is, you know, a fear of bold ideas. Um, What happens is that, you know, it it can happen at small sizes and then it can happen at large sizes, actually. It's just that like, you know, a fear of kind of like, you know, shaking things up too much or, you know, big ideas with lots of things changing at once are really hard to measure. And so like, actually, like, you know, if we just like make an incremental approach, it's very measured and we can, we know what the outcome is going to be. It feels safer. You know, I can get it done in the quarter. And depending on how your performance is managed, that might be more attractive. And so that is a diff- dangerous tendency because I think if we go back to like what quality means, you know, and you think about it as like, well, like quality is really, you know, your users are the judge of that and the way that they experience things oftentimes are like across products, across surface, across time. If you just think about, you know, these like incremental approaches to the little, you know, to the scope of whatever that is that you own, you are very likely not to like make the, the whole thing better. So I think we have to fight against that. And, you know, the way I look at it is, uh, you know, the way I talk about it is like reach, reach for the stars and land on the moon. And what I mean by that is that vision work is really important. And I think like sometimes it can get a bad name because you can end up with some folks that are doing vision work that goes nowhere and they make a beautiful deck and then it gets like seated on a shelf and nobody ever builds it. Like that is not what I'm talking about here. That is not what I recommend. But actually, you know, vision work that absolutely does look at the, you know, the entirety of the experience, a comprehensive approach, you know, a journey approach, and thinks about how these things, you know, various things may come together to be better and like sketch out the ideal version. And I think Brian Chesky talks about it. I think it was like the Levin mm-hmm. star experience. I think you once said, um, plus, so plus it's like the Snow White stuff. That yes, we talked about exactly. A couple times on this podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Looking at it as a journey. Yeah. Like it's not the five star approach. It's not the six star approach, but like the 11 star approach, but like show what that ideal version is. Like, cause you, you, if you don't know what that is, like, what are the chances that you're going to increment yourself to the right outcome in the end? And, you know, as I talked about before, like building the house, like you want to see what that picture looks like in the, you know, the, the you know, how all these pieces come together. And I strongly recommend you want to see what it looks like in, you know, in an ideal form, because you can always work back from that. 
And so it's like, okay, if this is what we want to get to, if this is what like our product is going to look like in two years, how do we get there? And what very likely is it's a team effort and various parts of your organization are going to have to own various parts. And, you know, maybe we ship this piece first so that we can study it and learn and, and, you know, make sure that the data is good before we move to the next piece. Like I'm not suggesting you have to ship the whole thing at once, but that like, you know, kind of North star lays out the process in a way that I think allows for, you know, big risk taking in a way that is measured and thoughtful and, um, you know, actually also feels like progress as you step towards that versus like, you know, trying to like get there, you know, day one and, you know, likely, you know, end up giving up. I love that. Reach for the stars, land on the moon. That could be a metaphor for so many things. Um, <laughs> let me try to squeeze in one more tactical tip for people listening. If someone's hiring a designer, so someone that's not a designer, you know, just a founder or product team, just like, what should you look for that may be a red flag? or something that you want to look for to kind of feel good that they're going to be a good fit? The key, I think, to keep in mind uh, is, you know, it's easier to teach tools and process than it is taste and character. So I would certainly, you know, pay a lot of attention to that, you know, kind of like their hit rate for, you know, great judgment and, and great taste. And how they've honed that, you know, even if, you know, they're not very experienced, like just to like see, do they have that, you know, natural inclination uh, for great things? The other piece of it is that, you know, certainly you want to find somebody with great talent for sure and, and high craft, but you also want to find somebody that's humble, you know, that like, you know, folks that are really good at what they do aren't always, uh, but humility is a really important part. I mean, I think it's a really important part for anybody on a team because, you know, if you're working on a team, you know, you need to work together and it is important that they have that respect and empathy and understanding and, and you know, enthusiasm for the folks around them, but also the users. So, you know, humility means that they're going to pay more attention to what the users are saying and hopefully be curious about what's working and what's not and, you know, strive to, to navigate these things to make it better. And then I guess the last piece would just be, you know, hustle or, or chutzpah. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what's the right way to put it, but, you know, the design and, you know, the creative functions is, you know, it's the act of creation and it's scary. You know, it's like to like create, take a blank piece of paper and propose something that you think is better is, is scary to you know, have the courage to say this is not good enough and we should do it again is scary. And so having somebody that has, you know, that kind of like courage inside them to, you know, fight for great is pretty important. And that hustle to like try to execute on that, you know, rapidly is of course, you know, essential as you're you're hiring at you know, really any stage of company. And I guess lastly, I think you you were asking in particular like you know, especially with younger companies or with startups, mm -hmm. you know, I think one thing that can be hard is like, do you hire a, you know, more junior doer or a more senior, you know, kind of like thinker or operator? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like, if you had all the money in the world, like all of it, but I, I do think in you know, your early stages, you probably do need a doer, but it is important to also have that kind of lens of, you know, how do you build an organization that's user focused in the way that they operate and the way that they work together and bringing, you know, a strategy that will help to be user focused from the start. So, you know, maybe a great way of doing that is kind of having like a more, you know, senior leader design advisor and then a, you know, kind of executor or doer, you know, full time on the team. That's a really cool tip. On the craft and taste piece, a lot of times people don't 
have that themselves necessarily. Any tip for how to measure that? Is there, I don't know, a book you'd recommend or trick, or is it just trust your, trust your judgment and like, does this feel great to you? It's contingent on like, what is the thing? What is the user need? You know, so something that, you know, is, is really great. Like, you know, we do a lot of tools that like we strive to make them power tools for our users. And a lot of times that means like dense information um, that of course is like still, you know, easily accessible, but it you know, will definitely feel different than perhaps, you know, a consumer product that is meant to be extremely, you know, light and sparse uh, and, you know, directive to like one individual thing at a time. So it really kind of depends on the context of the product sometimes. So that's why it's hard to kind of quote an individual book. But yeah, I mean, I can think on it and we can put it in the show notes. There, there are definitely books that talk about like the principles of great design uh, and you know, we can look at that. Amazing. We'll link to extra books that come to mind after. One other question I wanted to ask is what's a favorite project that you all have worked on at Stripe? Oh, yeah, we got a good one that I'm so excited about. Uh, we well, first off, I don't know if everybody knows this, but Stripe prints books. Uh, so Stripe Press, uh, we print books that are, you know, what we consider of ideas of progress. It's, you know, our intention of, of bringing great ideas out there. They don't all have it, you know, most of them don't have anything to do with financial infrastructure. It might be any number of, uh, interesting, you know, problems and opportunities of things and ideas that people have talked about. I have many of them in my background here. I'm yeah. a huge fan of Stripe Press. Nice. And we take great care to, you know, to kind of like deliver these ideas of progress in, in books that hopefully feel beautiful. And we have a new book coming out that you can pre-order now. Uh, and it is Poor Charlie's Almanac. Mm -hmm. And so it's Already actually pre-ordered. You did? I'm so mm -hmm. excited to hear that. I'm really excited yeah. for it. It's, it's a fascinating book and it, it's, it's 20 years old. It's actually uh, Charlie Munger's words, but Peter Kaufman, a, a friend and a colleague of his, assembled all of these documents over the years of things that, you know, Charlie had written and said, uh, and put it into this kind of like anthology. And so this book is really fascinating. And it's not, you know, it's not really a linear story so much. And so we have reprinted this book. Uh, we also have we created a teaser site that I strongly recommend y'all check out. It's really, oh, man, really fun. It's unreal. I remember when you launched that, I was like, just keeps going and gets crazier and wilder and amazing. I don't even know how that's possible in a, on a website. It's, it's pretty awesome. And, and that's uh, our website team is just like, as, you know, we talked about the importance of like design and engineering working super closely together. And it's just just like that. And wild. You know, that art and science coming together into something that, you know, hopefully is is fun and engaging and people want to you know pursue it. And so we're working on that. The book will be coming out soon. And we're working on an update to the site that we're really, really thrilled about. So you can you know, kind of read the book online. Um, in a really in a special kind of way. So yeah, very big fan of this. What's the website for folks? Do you happen to have the URL? Otherwise, we'll link to it in the show notes. For yeah, the yeah, um, it is uh, press.stripe.com will be where you can see all the books that we have at Stripe Press. Um, and I believe the first one in the line. And actually, what you'll see in the, the website is that, you know, we originally had a kind of like, you know, typical buying model of like the squares outlined and one of the things that, you know, we sought to do with the website is to kind of consider like what would be, you know, a great experience for understanding different books. And like when you go into a bookstore, like you see like, you know, the, the spines of the books and you, you know, kind of pick them up and you turn them around and you look at them. And so that's actually what you will experience. I mean, I should stop describing it. Just go and check it out. Um, and you'll see um, as we, we sought to you know, deliver the, this work in a way that, you know, would be aligned with what a, a reader would want to pursue. I can't help but ask, but how did that even come together? Was it just like this passion project of like, oh, this book's coming out. I just want to invest a bunch of time and resources into this. Or is, how does that happen at a, at a Stripe? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, Stripe's mission is to increase the GDP of the internet. Like we, you know, we strive to build global economic prosperity because, you know, that's greater access across the globe. But there's more ways to do that than financial infrastructure. Financial infrastructure is absolutely a major part of that, right? And it is like kind of like the lifeblood of businesses and it enables them to accomplish more. But this notion of like ideas of progress is another angle into that. So while it might not be our core business, it is very much aligned with our mission. And so, yes, it takes time, but we feel that it's important for what we're setting out to do. Um, and it also relates to, you know, the pursuit of, you know, creativity and excellence. Um, it is a part of, you know, our identity. It is a part of, you know, who we, we feel we are or we strive to be. Uh, and, you know, we're excited to share that with people. So, you know, in part, it's like in some ways, like how they get to know us and they get to see, you know, the care that we put into, you know, any number of things. Katie, is there anything else you want to share or touch on before we get to our very exciting lightning round? We talked a little bit about, you know, the importance of different disciplines and the, you know, kind of importance of quality being a group effort. And, you know, I, I hope this doesn't, insult my function, as I say, but like at the core design is, is simply intention, You're bringing intentionality to the decisions that you make and thinking about, you know, who is this thing for? So like if you're designing a doorknob, let's say, and it's like, okay, does the doorknob speak to whether or not I'm going to push or pull or turn? Uh, is it comfortable in the hand? Is it easy to manufacture? Is it easy to put on and remove? You'll see these are some of the intentional decisions one could make, whether or not they're a designer, an engineer, the product person, a, you know, any old function um, can, you know, put that intentionality. If you think about like who is impacted by this, who is using this, and that literally could be anything from designing a doorknob to designing your org structure to designing your strategy. Now, obviously, great design is also creative and it also is demonstrated with great taste, you know, for what is beauty. Uh, and so, of course, that's where, you know, I would say that like design expertise of people that have these, you know, creative skills and, and this great taste is, you know, an incredible, important thing to, you know, bring into the organization. But I think, you know, day one, everybody can bring more care and intentionality. Um, and I think that will result in better outcomes internally and externally in the long run. I think your podcast is a, a great example of great craft and great quality. Like you're, you know, I would, I was just saying this to my husband the other day as I was talking about doing this. And it's just like your podcasts, there's like more usable learning per, you know, minute than, you know, most. Like, I don't know if that's like a, a metric that you're measuring, but like, I love how you don't have your guests tell about their background, right? Cause like when someone <laughs> tells about their background, like that is interesting, but like it's not really like usable information of like, oh, I can take this information and run with it and then bring it to my own team um, and make my work better. And so like you have clearly thought about that. Uh, well, I don't know if that's why you made that decision. Absolutely. But, like, that is exactly okay. Right. Okay. It's great. And I, I, and I also love, you know, the way that you, you set these things up, you know, you had said to me, you know, in the thing that you sent me, it's just like, if it's not good, we're not going to ship it. And you said it in very nice ways, by the way. But like, at first I had this like, oh gosh, like if it's not good, uh, what if it's not good? But I also had this moment of like, oh, well, that's pretty great because if it's not good, he's not going to, you know, embarrass me to the rest of the world, hopefully. And I love that because that was that courage that I was talking about earlier too, of that, like, you're not going to let bad go out because you know that you know, each one of these little things will end up 
you know, leading to a belief of the level of quality of what somebody, you know, can rely on getting when they listen to your podcast. And, you know, again, like one workout isn't going to be a six pack, but like every one of those things, you know, will end up leading to better, you know, quality overall. So kudos to you. You're nailing it. So great. Wow. Katie, what a nice way to end it. I really appreciate that. That's exactly how I think about it. Actually, you cracked my my whole strategy of just (laughs) making it as concretely useful as possible. Uh, I was actually on uh, David Perel's podcast recently, and and he had this really good way of describing this, which is exactly what I've tried to do, but I haven't put my words into it, of make it as uh, useful as possible per minute without removing the humanity. Mm. And I realized that's kind of what I do is like, you know, I could cut all the stories of everyone's backgrounds, but that's, that's, that sucks. So it's just optimized for value and concrete tactical advice, but also make it fun and human and interesting. Yeah. So, uh, thank you for the kind words. And with that, we've reached our very exciting lightning round. I've got uh, a number of questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, let's do it. What are two or three books that you've recommended most to other people? One uh, how to Win Friends and Influence People. It's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, I forget how many years old it is, but many, many decades. Yeah, I think it was like in the 1930s. Uh-huh. But yes, I mean, the, the cover is funny. You know, you might be embarrassed to read it on a bus. I don't know. But uh, the learnings from it, you know, are yeah. timeless. And I've actually read it four times. Wow. Uh, and I can always do for another because it is a great reminder of just like how important the way you articulate things are. And, you know, not in a, you know, negative or gross kind of way, but like people care first and foremost about themselves. Like that's the body that they are within. That is the context that they are within. And recognizing that, you know, I think can be really powerful as you think about leading teams, as you think about working with other people, as you think about being a, a good spouse, like whatever it might be. So I'm a big, big fan of that one. The other one is um, a newer book. I think actually it's still a couple of years old. It's about the Wright Brothers uh, by David call I think uh, I I've been learning how to fly and so like I'm very obsessed with this but like I think it's a book that's relevant to everybody especially even entrepreneurs because it just like kind of talks about the you know impossible challenge of like nobody thought it could be done you know even you know the American like Institute of Science like didn't think it could be done and you know these individuals that had the like resolve and the commitment to you know make it happen and I think also the power of this like beautiful partnership of course they're brothers uh, that doesn't always mean you get along uh, but they, they're brothers and they you know they did so and it, it's a beautiful story so big 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 fan of that and then third book I would just say is actually I brought it over because I knew you were gonna ask me this question um I don't know if you can read that, but uh, The Boy, The Mule, The Fox, and The Horse. Um, this book was given to me by Jenny Arden, which I think you may know. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful story. It's like, you know, it's it make you laugh. It's, you know, it teaches you a thing or two. And, you know, one of the best quotes in it is, one of our greatest freedoms is how we react to things. Very Buddhist. Yes. yes. Awesome. What is a recent favorite movie or TV show that you really enjoyed? Um, Oppenheimer was amazing. And TV show, uh, Shrinking. And that one was really good. And it actually really surprised me how like funny and like positive it was because the trailer for it does not give that impression, but it was really good. Sweet. I've not seen that. What is a favorite interview question that you like to ask candidates? Mm. Tell me what work you are most proud of. And the reason I ask that is because, well, it helps me understand their taste and their judgment, um, what motivates them, 
what uh, work they view as good um, and as a good outcome. Uh, it also helps me understand a little bit about, you know, what they like to do uh, and where, you know, their kind of like gravity pulls them. Is there a favorite product you recently discovered? Be an app or a physical thing, anything? Yeah. Well, as a parent, you should mm. definitely know the Tony Box. Oh, I don't know this. The Tony oh, Box. So good. So good. Okay. The Tony Box. I should have brought it over too. So it's a, it's like a squishy box, um, but it's a speaker and your kids can control it. And the way they control it is these little figurines. I mean, this is also like a brilliant product uh, because you want to buy all these figurines, but uh, the little figurines. So it could be like, um, you know, Belle from Beauty and the Beast or like Elsa from uh, Frozen. And, you know, they place the figurine on top and that activates the stories that this book, the thing reads to you or the songs that it plays for you. You can record your own voice so that you're telling stories to your child and they control it all by themselves and they can drop it on the floor and it's all good. Um, but the Tony box, pretty awesome. I just texted my wife to check this out. So I don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Great. Very handy and timely. Do you have a favorite life motto that you like to share, come back to, find meaningful? I don't say this out loud, but I do, I've had it as a post-it, like in my jewelry box and that I you know, see regularly. Um, tomorrow is today. And what I mean by that is that so often, you know, I will like in my head be like, oh, I'll do that tomorrow. Like, oh, I'll eat better tomorrow. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll think about that vision tomorrow. Oh, I'll, you know, communicate better expectations tomorrow. And you know, it's kind of like those like joke signs that like free beer tomorrow, uh, because, you know, very easily tomorrow just always moves on. And I needed to remind myself that like, you know, it's actually, it is now today. Tomorrow is I love now today. that one. I feel like I need to take all these mottos, which are amazing. I love this question that I just invented uh, and just put them all on my wall here in this office. I'm yes, that's a great idea. Cool you should make be. a book, a book of Lenny. Oh, Mottos. Oh, man. The Tribe of Mentors version of Lenny's podcast. That's awesome. Is there a lesson that your mom or dad taught you that has really stuck with you, especially as a newish parent? Yeah. I think about this a lot. I am a mom of uh, twin girls. And, you know, I feel so lucky that my parents raised me to see that accomplishment is based on merit and hard work. And they never made me feel like, you know, because I was small and that I was not as strong as, you know, somebody, um, whatever it might be that I wasn't able. And so like my dad had me, you know, chopping wood and mixing cement as a young kid. And, you know, that certainly led me, you know, in one part to be a designer, but also, you know, to be able to pursue leadership and be, you know, even though sometimes I'm comfortable, like willing to be in the room where I'm vastly outnumbered by people that, you know, don't look like me uh, and, you know, wanting to, or just like not letting that hold me back. And I actually, I thought about that the other day because I was riding in a, a lift to the airport. This was also at like 4 a.m. So it was like a really hard time to be in, the, in a lift to go into the airport. Mm -hmm. And the driver was telling me about his kids. Um, and actually he had twins. It was one boy and one girl. And so we were talking about twins. And he's like, yeah, 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 you know, like my girl, she's my princess. And, you know, I, you know, my son doesn't understand why I don't let her take out the garbage and like why her job is to sweep. And, you know, that's his job. And he's like, I'm not going to let her take out the garbage. Like, and I was just, 
I was sitting in the back of the car wondering, like, should I tell him, like, you're screwing it up? Like, no, like, just because, you know, she's a female doesn't mean that, like, she's not, you know, able to do the jobs, even the hard ones and even the bad ones, like taking out the trash. Uh, and, you know, I, I really do think that I'm so fortunate that, you know, that was never <laughs> the way that my parents were looking at it. And that, you know, it, now today, I feel like that is very much a part of a little bit of my chutzpah and willingness to, you know, kind of like step out there because I, you know, hadn't been held back from those hard jobs mm. earlier. Beautiful. Final question. You mentioned that you fly planes and this is my actually related to my last question. Uh, I guess one that I was going to ask if that's true. You mentioned it is true. Um, is, is there a lesson that you've taken from learning to fly and flying that you can, that you've brought into product leadership design? Anything come to mind? Yeah. First of all, learning fly has been such an amazing experience because there haven't been many things in my adult life where you feel like yourself going from like knowing nothing about something and like being able to do something. And it's just like, what an incredible uh, kind of journey that is. And so, you know, whether it's like, you know, learning a language or whatever, like that, that is awesome and highly recommended. But um, no, one of the key things that has definitely sat with me from the experience of learning how to fly that I definitely thought about how to bring it into my work is that when I was um, kind of getting to the stage of being able to do things myself, uh, so my instructor is sitting there next to me and, you know, usually he's right there at the controls with me. So if like something goes wrong when I'm, you know, flying, he's right there. And I remember the, you know, one of the first times when I was like learning how to land where he moved his seat back and like, like a lot. And so like he was now like kind of out of touch with the controls. Like he could jump there if he needed to, but like he really pulled back and it was such an incredible like visceral experience of like, he trusts me. Like in like it, right now he is like, he is showing his faith in me to take this and like take this challenge on. And I think about that all the time. It's just like, you know, how can I show, you know, my team, people I work with, like my support and trust in them, you know, to, to take that challenge on. And so like, I, you know, I can't always move my seat back, but like what might be the way? Uh, and so that's been a, you know, pretty, pretty great example of like something I want to pull forward. That is an awesome metaphor. I feel like this whole episode is just full of beautiful metaphors, also just full of beauty. Uh, Katie, thank you so much for being here. Two final questions. Where can folks find you online if they want to reach out and maybe ask some questions and how can listeners be useful to you? Yeah. Well, first off, please do, you know, find me online because, you know, as I talked about, like we're in the pursuit of, you know, trying to build excellent things and it's always a work in progress. And so I'm always interested to learn how others do it and, and, you know, see how we can improve our own methods. I am, uh, Lil underscore Dill on Twitter. And then I think um, that name was taken on threads. So I'm Lil underscore Dilly with a Y uh, on threads. And then I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and find me there. We're hiring. So definitely reach out. Uh, we um, at our job board to stripe.com slash jobs. Um, definitely check us out. Uh, we definitely would love to hear from you. Katie, again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Lenny. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this valuable, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Also, please consider giving us a rating or leaving a review as that really helps other listeners find the podcast. You can find all past episodes or learn more about the show at Lenny'sPodcast.com. See you in the next episode.